The following sermon is from New Life Baptist Church, where we exist to see lives transformed by the gospel as we make, mature, and mobilize disciples of Jesus. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at newlifeba.org. Well, this morning we are entering into, uh, we're a bit late, uh, but we're entering into the Advent season this year. Now the word Advent, it means arrival. And, and, and during the Advent season, we celebrate the first arrival, the first coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who came to bring salvation to the world. But not only do we celebrate Jesus's first coming, we also use this time, this Advent season, to anticipate, to anticipate his second coming, when he will return to judge the world and to establish the new creation. Our hope in this world, our hope in this lifetime, it lies not in this world, but in the world to come when Jesus comes back to make all things new. And he will do that. And so we celebrate and we anticipate this Advent season. And so during this Advent season as a church, we will be walking through three passages within Luke chapter 1 through 2. And so if you have your Bible this morning, and and I encourage you to to bring a physical copy of God's Word if you are able. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. And you'll see it on the screen as well. As the hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, invites us to do, I hope that this morning we will join in that chorus to hail the incarnate deity to worship and to rejoice in the Son of God who came to this world to bring us salvation. So this morning, I want to share with you, I'll give you my four points up front, and then we'll walk through them. I want to share with you four observations from our passage. First, we will see God's satisfaction revealed to Mary. Secondly, we will see God's salvation fulfilled for Israel. Third, we will see God's Son sent to the world. And then finally, we will see God's servant surrendered to his word. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and let's read our passage this morning. In the sixth month, that that being the sixth month of uh, Mary's cousin Elizabeth, her pregnancy. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth is in her old age. In her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do come this morning to exalt you. You are exalted. 
That is a fact. That is truth. Universal, you are exalted. And we come this morning to exalt your name. And so we, so we come not, not to be entertained, not to be informed, but we come to be changed, to be changed by you and changed by your word. And so I pray that you would open our eyes to behold, to behold wondrous things out of your word, that you'd open our hearts to behold Christ, and you would open our hands to surrender to his word in all things. Pray, come Holy Spirit, and work in the hearts of people now. For Jesus' sake and in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, first this morning we see God's satisfaction revealed to Mary. Now notice with me what the angel Gabriel first says to Mary. What does he say? He says, greetings, O favored one. This phrase can be understood as rejoice, one on whom God's grace has come. And here we see God's coming in God's coming to Mary, that it was by his grace. Mary was chosen by God to give birth to the son of God. There's nothing intrinsically worthy about Mary that set her apart from others, that she should be the one to give birth to the son of God, to the savior of the world. Now, there are some traditions that that take this verse wrongly to mean that God found Mary to be full of grace or that she was found uh, she was found to be having favor with God because she was perfectly holy without sin. And now Mary, she's the one through whom God dispenses grace to this world or that she is now our only link to Christ's salvation. There are some people who hold to that belief today. But hear me, church. The Bible clearly teaches that there is only one who is full of grace and that there is only one who is perfectly holy. Not Mary, but the one she gave birth to, Jesus. Mary was a humble sinner who received God's favor, not by her own merit, but by the sovereign grace of God. And she was chosen by his grace to carry out his redemptive plan in this world. And so when we read of Gabriel visiting Mary, we don't marvel at Mary's worthiness or in her merit, but rather we are to marvel in the worthiness creating and the merit dispensing grace of God. Grace that can take a lowly teenager from an obscure village and then use her to literally bring forth the entrance of God's son into this world. So we don't marvel at Mary. We marvel at Mary's God and in his sovereign grace. Now notice with me where it says Mary came from. uh, Nazareth. Now at that time, Nazareth was an obscure village in northern Israel. It was such a small village that the author Luke had to give the region where it was located for the sake of his readers to orient them geographically. It might be like uh, if someone from Texas, if, they, if you were to ask them if they, if they knew where Porter, Oklahoma was. I may ask some of you, maybe you don't know where Porter, Oklahoma is either. But most likely, probably 99 or 100% of people from Texas, they would say, I have no clue where Porter, Oklahoma is. And so then you would help them. You would help them by saying, well, it's about 30 to 40 minutes southeast of Tulsa. That's what Luke is doing by telling his audience that Nazareth was in the region of Galilee. And it highlights the fact that, again, it was so small and it was largely unknown by the Roman world. And yet it was to this bumpkin country village that the angel Gabriel was sent by God. Listen, God is often pleased to use the overlooked and the seemingly insignificant in his plan of redemption so that his grace may be magnified. 
so that all may know without a shadow of a doubt that it is God who has done it. He doesn't choose to use the most prominent and privileged among, he didn't choose to use the most prominent and privileged among the social elite in Israel to give birth to the Son of God. He didn't choose those whom we might think he should have chose. Instead, he chose a woman of lowly estate living in a down and out part of Israel. So I just, I just want to ask you this morning, do you want to be used by God? He's not grading on a curve, giving preference to those with a high intellect or great influence or significant giftings, or even, maybe to personalize it, even to those with a seminary education. He's not looking for those primarily. He uses those who have been and who are continually humbled by his grace. Isaiah 66 verses 1 through 2 says this, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And all these things came to be, declares the Lord. He says this, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. He uses those who have been and who are continually humbled by his grace. So I just want to ask you, is there something in your life right now that you are pointing to and saying, well, surely because of this, God's favor is on me and therefore God will certainly use me. Or maybe the opposite is true. Maybe this morning you're thinking, surely because of this thing in my life, surely because of what I have done, God's favor could never be on me. And surely he would never choose to use me. Listen, God's favor is toward us is not conditioned by our works, good or bad. That's the whole point of God's grace. That if you are trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, your past successes or your past failures, your greatest spiritual accomplishments and your worst sinful moments, they don't define you and they don't represent you before God's presence. If you are in Christ, it is his finished work alone that defines you. And it is his perfect righteousness that represents you before the presence of God. If you are in Christ, then rejoice, O favored one, for the Lord is with you. Tim Keller has put it this way. He said this, the gospel is this, that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared to hope. As great as a sinner as you are, and as great as a sinner as I am, Jesus is a greater Savior. And he invites you this morning to receive his forgiveness for your sins and to have the promised hope of eternal life. If you would trust in Jesus this morning, it can be said of you as well. Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you for because of Christ Jesus, your Savior, you have found favor with God. God's satisfaction was revealed to Mary, but also God's salvation was fulfilled for Israel. Look with me at verses 31 through 33. The text says this, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. 
He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Notice the name that Mary is to name the son, her son. What was it? Jesus, right? The word Jesus, it's the Greek form of the Hebrew name Yeshua, which literally means the Lord saves. And so the purpose for Jesus' coming, it's bound up in his name. He came to seek and to save the lost. So notice also how Gabriel describes this son of Mary. Not only that his name will be Jesus, but that he will be great and will be called son of the most high. In short, the baby of Mary will be of the same essence as God. And we'll touch on this later. So put a bookmark there. We'll touch on that later. He goes on, though, to, to say the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. What, what, what does that mean? How does that play out? Although Jesus had no true human father in terms of his creation, he did have an earthly father, Joseph, who is a descendant and of the lineage of King David. Now, OK, why is that important? Well, from the very beginning, right after the fall of Adam and Eve, when sin entered into the world, God promised a redeemer would come to save us from our sin. And so we see as early as Genesis 3, 15, where God gives the first gospel promise that an offspring of Eve would trample overfoot Satan. And so the gospel promises, they start general, but as you read through the Old Testament, and as you have read through, I hope you have seen it, they start general, but then they become to get more clear. It's like going, I recently went to the eye doctor, and when you go and they put those machines on you, at first it's what? It's, it's a little blurry, but then they start making the clicks, 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 until it comes into greater focus. So that's kind of the, the story, the gospel promises throughout the Old Testament. They start a little blurry, they start general, but then incrementally, progressively, they become to, to get in greater focus. And so from Genesis 3.15 to Abraham in Genesis 12 to Jacob in Genesis 49 to Moses in Deuteronomy 18 to David in 2 Samuel 7 to Isaiah in Isaiah 7, 9, 53 and other places. All of these promises of God to his people to send a future redeemer, a future Messiah who would save his people from their sins. All of these promises find their fulfillment. It's as if click, 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 full focus in Jesus Christ. Here in our text, we see God's faithfulness to the covenants he made with Israel, to the covenants he made with Abraham and David. He is the promised offspring through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. And he is the promised eternal king who will reign over Israel and over the world. Listen, the son of God broke into this world as a Jew to fulfill the 2000 years of covenants God had promised to bring salvation to Israel. God is faithful and he will always keep his word. And if we ever doubt that, let us look to Jesus, who is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. But there was only one problem. Most of Israel rejected their Messiah, right? John 1 would put it this way. John would write this. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood nor of the will of man, but of God. 
Yes, Jesus was the true Messiah of Israel, but in his coming, he brought salvation, not just for those of Jewish descent. He brought salvation for all who would receive him as Savior and King. And that's likely very good news for every single one of us in this room. Or to put it another way, Jesus came as Messiah, not to continue the dynasty of Israel's kingdom, but he came to establish the kingdom of God in this world, to establish his saving reign over the hearts of people and to extend his reign to all people groups in the world. In his coming, Jesus fulfilled God's salvation for Israel and he revealed God's salvation for the world, for all who would receive him, which then leads us to our third point this morning. That God's son was sent into the world. Read with me verses 34 through 37. Mary said to the angel, how, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren for nothing will be impossible with God. Isn't that one of the best verses in all the Bible? Nothing will be impossible with God. Well, in these verses, we see the, this astounding truth that the uncreated one became one of his creation. The uncreated one became one of his creation. Now, think about it. If, if you were the CEO of a company and the board came to you and said, hey, we, we have a big problem in the mailroom. And so in order to fix it, we're asking that you voluntarily demote yourself to the position of mailroom sorter. CEO down to the very bottom, right? Bottom of the rung. Well, think of the humility and the selflessness that that would require of you. Or, or maybe another illustration. Imagine you were the president of the United States. And, uh, and, and after receiving all the acclaim and adulation and honor and prestige and prominence and power that that office holds, where people are waiting on you at your beck and call, and that you are leading the world's greatest nuclear superpower. You have all the power in your hands. So, so you think. And then you voluntarily trade places with the janitor who cleans the White House bathrooms. Now, those analogies don't even begin to convey the unspeakable humility our Lord demonstrated when he, the eternally existing universe creating, reigning over all son of God, the one whom the angels never cease to exclaim, holy, holy, holy. This is the one who became one of his creation. This is the one of whom Isaiah 40 speaks of when it says, Go up on a mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. For who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? To whom will you liken him? Do you not know? Have you not heard? Have it, has it not been told from you from the very beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Lift up your eyes and see who created these, who brought out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one of them is missing. 
Have you not heard? Have you not seen? Have you not known the Lord? He is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. This is the one through whom everything was created and by whom everything continues to exist right now. He is the one who stooped down to become one of his own creation. Now, no analogy suffice to convey the absolute depths of our Lord's humility and his love. Because listen, church, he did this for us and for our salvation. And so if you ever begin to doubt the depths of Jesus's love for you, then look to the cradle where the eternal son of God was born for you. And if you begin to doubt, look also to the cross where that same eternal son of God died for you. The uncreated one became one of his creation to purchase and to redeem us from our sins. So I just want to invite you this morning to behold your God and to worship the one who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and took the form of a servant. And that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross for you. For our sake, the Son of God became the Son of Mary. The uncreated one became one of his creation to redeem us from our salvation. He was born as a child to make us children of the living God. Now, it's important to note that when Jesus was born, when Jesus, uh, yeah, when he was born, he didn't temporarily suspend his godness, his deity. This is the mystery and the miracle of the virgin birth. That in his birth, Jesus, born of woman and conceived by the Holy Spirit, is born both truly God and truly man. The divine and the human natures in one person. One of the clearest examples that I think that shows the fullness of both Jesus's humanity and his deity is in Mark chapter four, where Jesus and his disciples are crossing the Sea of Galilee on a boat. And it's a very familiar passage, a very familiar story in the Gospels. And while on the, while on the boat, what is Jesus doing? He's sleeping, right? He, he got tired. He was weary. He was weak. He was truly human. He was sleeping. And yet while he was sleeping, a great storm arose, so great that the disciples thought that they were going to perish. And in their panic and in their fear, they cry out to Jesus, Jesus, wake up. Don't you care that we're going to die? And then what does Jesus do next? He gets up. Maybe and This is not in the text, so this is my speculation. He gets the sleepy out of his eye. He maybe uh, stretches a little bit. And then what does he do next? He rebukes the wind and the waves by just his spoken word. Peace, be still. And the wind and the waves cease. And the disciples' response says it all when they say, Who then is this? That even the wind and the waves obey him. Later they would realize that yes, 
Jesus, he is truly human, but even more, he is truly divine. Fully God, fully man, two natures in one person. Or as the hymn would say, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Commenting on this passage, Wayne Grudem, he says this, I thought this was very helpful. Here, Jesus' weak human nature completely hid his omnipotence and until that omnipotence broke forth in a sovereign word from the Lord of heaven and earth. Or another example of Jesus's humanity and his deity, as Jesus was being born, as he was being born at that very same time, he was sustaining the universe by his divine power. Jesus wasn't sometimes God and then sometimes human. No, he was and he will remain for all eternity, truly God and truly man, both in perfect unity. For us and for our salvation, the uncreated one became one of his creation. The son of God became the son of Mary to make us one of God's children. Now, I know some of you are thinking right now, do, okay, does this really matter? I thought, I thought I was coming to a church, not to a seminary class this morning. And while there are many reasons this matters, and while there are many reasons it's necessary for the Son of God to become a human, for the sake of time, and you all may be saying thank you, uh, let me give you one reason why the, doc- why the doctrine of the incarnation is so important. And that's this, Jesus had to be human in order to be our representative before God. You see, in the very beginning, as the first human, Adam acted as a representative for all humanity. Now, if Adam had perfectly obeyed God, then sin would not have entered into the world and each generation following Adam would not have inherited his guilty, sinful nature. But Adam did not perfectly obey God, did he? He sinned, and as such, he now serves as our legal representative before God. Paul would speak about this in Romans chapter 5. And maybe an illustration that's helpful. When your representative votes, your federal representative, state representative, doesn't matter. When they vote, it's as if, in a sense, you are voting. Because they represent you on your behalf to the government. Now, you may disagree with their vote. You may think that's unfair, but it doesn't change the fact that they are representing you. And so in his sin, because Adam represented us all, in Adam's sin, therefore, we all sinned. In Adam's fall, we all fail. And in Adam's guilt, we all stand guilty before God because he serves as our representative or as some theologians say, as our federal head. But would you notice with me, flip, flip a couple pages to Luke chapter 3. Would you notice with me the genealogy in Luke chapter 3? Now, I know most of you probably, you see a genealogy in your Bible reading, what do you do? You don't want to admit it, but right? you skip it. Because right? like, all right, is this really important? But look with me. Do you see who Luke traces Jesus' genealogy back to? While Matthew traces Jesus' genealogy back to David, then to Abraham, to show Jesus he is the true Messiah of Israel, notice who Luke traces Jesus' genealogy back to. Adam, right? 
And in this, we see that Jesus came to be the true and the final Adam. He came to to be our faithful and our sinless and our perfect representative before God. Where Adam failed, Jesus would succeed. And in his life, Jesus perfectly obeyed the law of God and he was perfectly submitted to God's will. In short, he lived the perfect life that you and I never could live. He was perfectly obedient to God and he achieved a, he achieved a perfect righteousness in our place, for our sake, for our salvation. And so when we talk about being clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, and you'll hear that phrase a lot from me moving forward. This is what we are referring to, not an abstract righteousness, but a, an achieved righteousness of Jesus Christ through his lifetime. We are talking about the active obedience of Jesus. And so if you are a Christian, if you are trusting in Christ, if you are in Christ, when God looks at you, he sees the perfect obedience, the perfect achieved righteousness of Jesus Christ in your place. Because Jesus was truly human, he is able to be our true representative before God. He is able to be the final and the true and the better Adam. We are covered and safe and secure in his righteous representation to God on our behalf. When he voted on the cross, he voted on our behalf. Many times when I've asked people why God should let them into heaven, a lot of times their response is, and maybe your response this morning is this. Well, I think God will let me into heaven because I'm generally a good person. Well, listen, if you are in Christ... You stand commended to God by the Son. You stand clothed before God in Christ's perfect righteousness. But listen to me, friend. If you are not trusting in Christ, if you are still trusting in your own attempts of living a good life, a good moral life for God, then listen, you don't stand commended to God. You stand condemned before God. You're guilty because Adam is still representing you before God. And you are condemned because your sin testifies against you. So I just want to ask you this morning, are you still in Adam or are you in Christ? Who's your representative before God right now? If you are not in Christ, I invite you this morning to turn from your sin and to trust in Jesus for your salvation. Because he welcomes you to himself today. He desires to save you. May today be the day of your salvation. And one day when you stand before God, Jesus will go before you. And he will go before the Father and he will say, he's mine. She's mine. Because I represent them. This is why the doctrine of the incarnation is so vital and so practical for our lives today. Our salvation depends on it. Now, coming to the end of our time, as you read verse 37, you might be thinking, understandably, right up, up to this point, you might be thinking, surely this can't be true. This is just fanciful mythology, a, a God and a human united in one person. That's impossible. Well, this then brings us to verse 37, where Gabriel says, nothing will be impossible with God. 
So may this truth, when it comes to the doctrine of the incarnation and the virgin birth, that nothing is impossible for the one who created heaven and earth. And may this same truth fuel our faith to believe in him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ever ask or think. I I just want to ask you this morning, do you believe, do you really believe that God can transform our neighborhood right here by the gospel of Jesus Christ? For nothing will be impossible with God. Do you believe that God can save your friend or your family member who is living right now, reveling in the ways of sin? Nothing will be impossible for God. Listen, if God is able to cause the virgin birth of Jesus within an ordinary young woman, then he is able to also cause the new birth within the heart of the most rebellious sinner. For nothing will be impossible for God. And so may this truth heighten our view of God. May we be a church that holds on to and never lets go of a big God theology. It may heighten our view of God that nothing is impossible with him. And may it also deepen our prayer life to God. For nothing will be impossible with God. Finally, we see... God's servant surrendered to his word in verse 38. Mary responds to this astounding revelation and she says this. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. When God's grace came to Mary and when God promised to do the impossible through her, it led her to an unqualified surrender to his word. To be sure, What happened to Mary is unique only to one person in history, but the principle we can draw from her response is universal for every single Christian. And that is this, servants of the Lord are surrendered to his word. Now, if if you're paying close attention, you may say, wait a minute. She said, let it be done according to your word, to that of Gabriel, Not, not, not God's word. But if we go back earlier to verse 19, we see Gabriel is introduced merely as a messenger from God to his people. He, 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 he comes first to Zechariah and then to Mary. In fact, that's what the word angel means. It literally just means a messenger, who, one who is a messenger. And so when Gabriel spoke, he was acting as a messenger of God, declaring God's word to Mary. And so we see another principle here. That it is God's revealed word. Not that of some personal, personalized, experientially driven, mystical moment. But it is God's word that we are to submit ourselves to. Now, I know some people, right? I, I've said it myself in my own life earlier. It, some people say, if only God would speak to me and tell me, what I should, tell me what I should do with my life, right? If only I knew his will for me. Well, there is good news for you brothers and sisters, because God has spoken to you. He has revealed his will for your life and he has done so in his word. So if you feel as though maybe you are lacking direction for life, the problem is not with God's lack of speaking. It might be with our lack of submitting to what he has already revealed in his word. Listen, 99% of God's will for your life is already revealed in his word. And so as you daily surrender yourself to his word, he will gradually begin to reveal that remaining 1%, the personal aspects of his will for you. 
Do you want to serve the Lord? Do you want to be used mightily by him in your life? Then surrender yourself to his word, to its truths, its promises, and its commands. Every day, devote yourself to knowing God's word, to believing God's word, to obeying God's word, and to proclaiming God's word. So that's why at the beginning of next year, as a church, I'm I'm going to encourage us to commit together to daily read through the Bible and to do it together. Each week, and you will see in the upcoming bulletins, uh, a a reading plan for the upcoming week. And I want to invite us to commit, unless you have another Bible plan, but I I think it would be really uh, sweet of us, you know, for us to, to read through the Bible together. May we be a church that is surrendered to and devoted to God's word. And may we ask him to use us mightily as his servants to see lives transformed by the gospel as we make, mature, and mobilize disciples of Jesus. And may Mary's response in verse 38 to God's grace, to his salvation, to his son, and to his word be ours today. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. So in closing, I want to ask you four questions. The most important, have you received God's grace? Is God's favor on you because you're trusting in Jesus for your salvation? If not, again, I invite today, may today be the day of your salvation. Please come to me. I would love to share with you what it looks like to follow Jesus. Number two, are you trusting in the Lord as your promise-making and covenant-keeping God? During your days and your weeks, are you putting your full weight on the promises of God? Listen, it brings great delight to our Heavenly Father's ear when he hears his children say, Father, you have said. I've shared this story before, but as a dad, you know, there are times when I tell our kids something and then uh, I forget about it. And then one of our one of our children, especially, she'll come. She'll, oh, I gave it away. Uh, uh, yeah, she'll come up and she'll say, but daddy, you said you said we could do it. And when she says that, is it annoying to me or is it delightful to my ears? I love it because in that she is saying, daddy, I believe you are trustworthy. I believe that you will do what you said you will do. When we say, Father, you have said back to him, it delights his ears because he is a faithful God who always keeps his promises. Are you trusting in his promises daily? I invite you in your Bible reading this next week, find one promise, try to find one promise from each passage and trust in that promise throughout your day. Thirdly, Will you tell others this week about the Son of God who came into the world to save sinners? This year, Christmas, as you all probably know, it falls on a Sunday and two Sundays from now. And so I encourage you, along with praying for gospel opportunities this week, also pray for opportunities to invite someone to church this Christmas to hear the good news that Jesus saves. And finally, will you consider committing yourself to daily reading the Bible next year alongside your church family. My prayer for our church is that we would be those that Isaiah 66 says, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and those who tremble at God's word. May we be a church who daily meditates on God's word, who is shaped by God's word and who obeys God's word. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you have any questions or if we can serve you in any way, please connect with us at newlifeba.org.